this <coughs> evening, I'd just like to offer a few um, pointers, reflections, things to consider and bear in mind about both um, navigation, we might say, or steering um, within imaginal practice or sensing the soul, but also between practices. Uh, So some things about navigation and also, secondly, some things about uh, concepts and ideas and uh, just a little bit about their place in uh, in practice, uh, in sensing the soul, etc. Okay, so uh, with regard to uh, yes, what we might call steering or navigating in practice, um, as I said. Uh, someone who's doing soul-making practice um, uh, has to understand it's not. we're not just talking about imaginal practice, we're not just talking about sensing the soul. Those practices, which are themselves very, very rich, imaginal practice and sensing the soul, are themselves kind of um, nestled within or part of a much larger uh, framework of uh, related practices um, and they need those other practices at times to um, support, nourish, consolidate, balance uh, what's going on in the imaginal practice just to give relief, etc., take the pressure off. Um, as I've pointed out, or sometimes try and remember on retreats to point out at the beginning, you know, it's probably not wise, and it's probably not even possible, to, to try and do imaginal practice all day long. Um, it needs the balance of samadhi, of emptiness, of metta, of emotional uh, work, working um, with the energy body, etc., uh, etc. Et so that a person engaged in soul-making dharma and soul-making practice is actually moving between different practices at different times. And as always, there's there's an art to that, uh, a playfulness to it, but also a kind of wise and attuned and sensitive responsiveness that's necessary. And then uh, there is, of course, the, the navigation, the steering uh, within practices. Now, a lot of this, uh, <clears throat> what we might call steering or navigation, you know, sometimes it's quite clunky, a move from one thing to another, Um, but often it's much more subtle uh, the way we can shift between practices. Uh, So I've given the image uh, many times in different contexts of uh, an eagle or a hawk soaring on the thermals, the warm air currents, and if it wants to move to the right, you know, fly to the right, glide to the right, it's just a very subtle leaning Inclination of the tilt of the wings to the to, you know to the right upwards the left wing upwards etc the right wing downwards and uh, vice versa um, it's quite it uh, the art is in the subtlety oftentimes or you know if you're riding a bike um, sometimes the steering happens more by the leaning 
or a motorbike or a bicycle, um, or if you've seen um, people um, sailing in in relatively small boats, um, they sort of lean over over one side, uh, pulling the sail. That's slightly different, but there's um, sometimes, of course, that's quite dramatic and vigorous, but. Um, but a lot of this navigation is really quite subtle, and as things develop, as our as our artfulness in practice and practices develops, uh, we can um, find that uh, that whole moving nav- uh, between emphases, between directions, etc., in practice or between practice practices gets. Uh, correspondingly subtle and um, more subtly attuned. And the general point, which I pretty sh- can't remember if I've said it elsewhere, but it really bears repeating. Um, uh, you know, sometimes we're so when should I do this and when should I do that? Um, when should I um, just be with an emotion and when should I try and uh, drop it or see the emptiness of it or, or whatever? Um, I don't know that uh, there's necessarily in each instance uh, a mistake, um, or one shouldn't fear a mistake in each instance. If, for let's say, if we're talking about emotions and um, something's coming up emotionally and uh, it's difficult, and one uh, just decides in that moment to steer away from it, not just come back to the breath. It's just I'll just regard it as uh, the kind of a bit of papancha, or I'll just see the emptiness of it and let it go. Um, and one makes that decision. Now, of course, uh, that may not be the most helpful decision, either at the time or in the long run. But I don't have to fear so much about it. If that's the case, it will um, it will tend to kind of come back and keep knocking at the door, or something will. Um, feel like it's dried up or not, or not working. We'll, we'll get the, the, the cues and the clues and the indications in our practice and in our life that, oh, I need to go back to that and explore it, for instance. Or, conversely, a person might, um, in, in a certain instance, decide to go with emotion and be with it and explore it. But after a while, again, the cues, the clues, the indications um, tell me actually, I think I'm just kind of creating a lot of mud here. There's nothing really um, deeply authentic or real in this particular emotion. It's just the mind kind of spinning and making a mess, as it does, uh, as the, uh, you know, the Buddha would say, the deluded mind has that uh, tendency and that habit. So in each instance, you don't get paralyzed in, oh, should I do this, should I do that? More samadhi, less samadhi, more imaginal, you know, more imaginal practice, or should I do an emptiness practice? Um, we can go with something, but if we stay sensitive and stay uh, receptive to the cues that we're getting back from our experience in relation to whatever uh, choice of, of direction or leaning we've gone, then, then we can read that we can always change something. So I'm not, I, I, I don't think um, fearing making mistakes in the moment is is really uh, justified or, or helpful. 
what may be uh, a mistake, uh, or, or I sometimes tend to think perhaps the only mistake in navigating between different practices would be to always do the same thing, <clears throat> or only uh, one thing, only one of two choices. So I always be with an emotion, uh, or I always drop it and say return to the breath. Either one of those always um, is going to be problematic. I'm not going to uh, learn nearly as much um, in terms of the total territory of what we can learn and discover in, and open up in practice if I just do one or the other. Or some people, some practices, some traditions in Buddha Dharma teach um, is always with a microscopic attention. Always you're kind of borrowing the attention into something kind of atomizing experience and that's kind of in, in that system is held to be, well, that's the way that you're going to get insight. Um, and so that the attention is always trying to work in this kind of atomizing microscopic way. Other traditions, either within insight meditation or um, borrowing from, say, Mahamudra, Dzogchen traditions, sometimes Advaita traditions, um, always uh, work with a wide awareness. And again, uh, one may be, one will almost certainly be missing uh, quite a lot of insight by, by just doing one or just doing the other. All kinds of things won't be, uh, won't become apparent, uh, won't get absorbed, will we'll have partial insight. And there's also other reasons, energetic uh, consequences from doing just one or just the other in terms of how the mind feels, how the energy moves in the body, etc., etc. So sometimes I, you know, I just like to say to people, um, you know, don't fear so much the mistakes in the moment. Look at this kind of um, an overview of your practice or look at it over time. And if you're always just doing one thing, always just one kind of approach or one kind of response to some particular uh, area of experience that comes up, um, that always doing one thing, would, I, I think, would be a mistake. So less fear more openness to the possibilities and the diversity and the range and the flexibility of approach, of direction, of way of looking, of practice, etc. But that then invites the question of, of navigating. Uh, it, it, it brings that question in, and, uh, and so we have to address that. <clears throat> so one of the possibilities um, uh, that can arise both in, well, actually in meta practice, in emptiness practices, and in imaginal practices, is that um, in the opening that happens in any of those practices, in the letting go, in the in the beauty that we're touched um, with, uh, it's possible that lovely. Uh, lovely feelings arise, lovely experiences in the energy body arise, and it's as if the path then forks, potentially it forks. So we, one option is to lean into those lovely feelings and pay attention to them with the intention of enjoying them, of spreading them, of absorbing into them, etc. And if we lean that way, then at any time, then we are uh, moving down the samadhi route. 
the pervasion, uh, the permeating of body and mind with whatever quality of well-being is uh, present or has arisen um, uh, as a result of our practice or just spontaneously or whatever. So that's... um, when we're doing imaginal practice, that's a common occurrence. When we're doing emptiness practice, that will be a very regular occurrence. Or when we're doing metta practice as well. And with each of those three practices, metta, emptiness, and imaginal, the instructions would be slightly different. So I don't want to particularly go into that right now. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, or the, those differentiations right now. But um, the samadhi, um, the samadhi uh, qualities, if you like, or ingredients that come from working with an image, uh, an erotic imaginal image, um, uh, will will arise uh, quite quite regularly. And so people have found this related to the way the image opens up our energy body and aligns and harmonizes our energy body openness, alignment, harmonization of the energy body are all absolutely characteristic of um, uh, certainly the first four jhanas, but in a way we could say of all jhanas um, and all samadhi. It's central to what I would take samadhi to mean. <clears throat> so when we do that, or rather if we, if we always do that, um, so whenever... Um, that the kind of loveliness in the energy body and, and the emotional qualities, joy and, 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 and peace, um, uh, ecstasy, etc., rapture, when they arise, if we always lean into them and go into the samadhi, we'll, um, in a way, we're only going to gain a, a portion of the imaginals immense treasures. So I'm, I'm saying this partly because someone was uh, reporting this to me indirectly. She didn't kind of realize it. She was listening to uh, talks on soul making, etc., and playing a little bit and discovering that often these samadhi qualities came up and they were quite new for her. Um, uh, and so she was leaning repeatedly into the, the samadhi, almost like using the imaginal to then get these lovely qualities in the energy body and the heart and then uh, kind of hone in on them, open to them, absorb them, leaning it towards the samadhi um, and towards jhana. But if we always do that, as I said, you're only going to gonna miss um, a huge portion of the you know, uh, unfathomable and, uh, and diverse treasures that are there in the imaginal. It would be a bit like, um, for example, um, someone uh, making a, a profound uh, and beautiful work of art, and maybe it's made out of a precious substance, I don't know, bronze or gold or whatever, and, uh, and you, you melt it down. Uh, and extract the bronze because bronze is, or gold or whatever it is because that's worth that's um, worth something. It's valuable. Um, the work of art, though, uh, will be worth more. Oh, if it's a if it's a great work of art, it's going to be worth more than just the um, the, the, the the value of the 
its value is more than just resides in the value of the material of bronze or gold or whatever it's made from. So financially it's worth more, but existentially even more so. It will keep on giving if it's a profound work of art. It has that unfathomability, um, uh, which you know profound works of art have, have uh, you know closely related, or if not the same thing as imaginal uh, images. They keep on going. They have that unfathomability, that inexhaustibility. They can touch your soul endlessly. So, um, to always go towards the samadhi, take the samadhi uh, fork, uh, is going to um, limit, actually, how much we open to recognize and um, receive the gifts, uh, the the diverse and, and profound gifts of the imaginal. But sometimes it's part, it, it's, an, it's a really helpful thing to do. Here's this image. I decide to, and and there's loveliness coming up because of the eros or whatever, and the beauty there, and the opening in the energy body, and to decide to go uh, to let the image be secondary, and those lovely qualities in the energy body, in the in the mind and heart, be primary. Joy, peace, whatever they are, ecstasy, rapture. Um, even as, if even if that's quite mellow, um, to 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 hone in on them, to open to them, to absorb into them, to really get intimate with them, developing the smiley, that's really, really helpful. Uh, as I said, partly as a balance to the imaginal practice, um, because it will be too intense and too kind of um, probably um, unhelpfully entangling to do imaginal practice all day long. Um, partly because we, we rest well there, we get nourished and resourced, which influences our view on all kinds of things. There's all kinds of other things to learn in samadhi practice. And part of the kind of, uh, the, uh, almost want to say the witchcraft of, of samadhi practice, the wizardry of it, um, we learn a lot there that has to do, that, that bears fruit in all kinds of areas, including imaginal practice. Um, so sometimes doing that is really valuable. Always doing it is we're really going to miss this treasure. Just like if we burnt, uh, if we melted down this um, amazing sculpture that was made from bronze or whatever, and, and just because we want the bronze, we've well, missed the art. Yeah, I've missed the profundity of the art and its endless gift, potentially endless gift to my soul, for my soul. Um, but this this is one of the kind of uh, common and classic almost um, possibilities of, for, of forks when we're doing imaginal practice forks in the path where we can lean one way or another and it will it will uh, arise quite regularly I think <clears throat> um, what makes the difference um, because sometimes what we get is is a kind of, well, the image is there and the lovely feeling is there. And so I kind of have to decide, where, where am I leaning exactly? Am I leaning primarily to the lovely feeling in the energy body and, and, and the mind and the heart? Then I'm going towards the samadhi. Am I leaning primarily towards the, um, the soul-making aspects of the image and resonating with them and opening with them and the eros and etc.? Um, then I'm doing 
you know, then the image is primary. Am I balancing the two? How, you know, what's the relative degree of balance between? So all this can be played with. Um, and it could be that, you know, one lets the image completely fade or it just goes to the background while the, while the samadhi qualities are um, uh, most prominent or vice versa. The samadhi qualities, um, I kind of let them really go to the background, the image, or I hold the two in kind of relative balance. Um, but I should be familiar with uh, moving and working along that whole range again. Uh, talking about ranges, flexibility, making sure that when we talk about these different ranges, as we did in that talk, Spreading of Five Wings, um, that, that the whole range is available to us and we're not kind of uh, always, always hanging out or preferencing one area of that range. So in moving between um, samadhi and image, or actually in, in moving along the spectrum between, say, pure samadhi and pure imaginal practice, the key factor is intention. Um, so, for example, when I'm leaning in the samadhi direction, my intention is to support, at that moment, at that, at that time, my intention is to support, to stabilize, and to enjoy the factors of samadhi, of the jhanic factors or whatever, um, on the one hand. So that's um, that's my intention. It's the intention that makes the difference, because the intention directs and primes the attention and what I'm trying to do, um, uh, uh, for example, I'm trying to enjoy it. It, it. it shapes, it not just directs the attention, but it shapes it or flavors it or conditions it in a way. So an intention that's trying to enjoy has a certain kind of um, yeah, morphology to it in the sense of it's open, it's tasting, it's penetrating, it's relishing. All that is wrapped up in the att- attention, but it's um, it's driven by, it's programmed by the intention. This is what makes a difference. When my primary, uh, when I'm intending to go down the um, uh, Im- imaginal practice, uh, and I'm leaning that way, then my intention is for soul making. That's why it's important. What, what, what nodes need lighting up? Where's the soul making factor in all this complex image or imaginal constellation if the self and other and the world are involved? Where's the sense of soul, soulfulness right now? Can I um, tune into that? Um, so again, the intention is for soul making and that uh, directs and shapes, informs the attention. Um, so there might be it might be working with an image and uh, there is all kinds of lovely feeling going on the body is in complete rapture and it's dissolved into a, a ball of luminous white you know luminous uh, whiteness etc but it still might be possible despite the intensity of that lovely feeling which could easily go into jhana my intention at that moment may be towards soul-making. The image is still there. I'm aware of what's going on in, in the body and mind and the loveliness there. But my intention is towards the soul-making. Um, so, so the intention is the primary thing that kind of determines which of these forks we're going down at any time. And that's, uh, that's an important thing to bear in mind. 
So again, I'm offering these as reflections, things for you to um, try out in practice and get a feel for them yourselves, make them personal. I know what that feels. Ah, I see, I get the feel of that kind of leaning, of that kind of steering. I get the feel of um, how that, this or that um, emphasis or intention or whatever we're talking about makes a difference. So everything we're talking about, you know, is there to be um, incorporated, discovered in your own practice, or deliberately incorporated, tried out, experimented, until you get taste for it yourself, um, and you make it your own, and you understand it, you've absorbed it. So there's this, as I said, this uh, possibility of emphasis or leaning uh, between, say, imaginal uh, soul-making emphasis, imaginal uh, practice, and samadhi. And within um, imaginal practice, I've already made this point, but again, it's worth repeating, uh, with the elements or the nodes, um, to remember that there's uh, not a kind of uh, a formula for the order in which they go in. There's not a predictable um, uh, unfolding. First this element lights up, first I do this and then that. Um, It's not so linear like that. Again, what that means for practice is it throws us back into a kind of openness of possibility. We don't exactly know what will light up first. It means my antennae have to be primed, I have to be receptive, I have to be delicate and sensitive in my attention so that I can notice where is the soul making, what's igniting right now, what would be helpful, uh, etc. Um, what's possible right now out of all the different elements that we can <coughs> give attention to, begin to notice, or begin to deliberately uh, ignite, tweak, play with, etc. So, uh, as I've already mentioned that point and gave some examples where, uh, if I remember, for instance, the sense of being loved came first, um, and then an emotion, and then uh, the imaginal sense of the trees, etc. Or, um, for example, we o- we often start with the instructions with the energy body but it doesn't have to come first you know so you will find that and I've pointed this out um, many times the, you will find that when an image is is imaginal or is potentially imaginal um, has meaning for the soul meaningfulness for the soul is potentially soul making that it uh, it opens up the energy body it harmonizes it it aligns it etc and so uh or, or um, what, the other way around, what can, in terms of explaining now the non-linearity, the other way around too uh, can work, and we've emphasized that many times. Sometimes you're working with something, um, it's not really imaginal, there's not really the sense of sensing with soul there. Open up the energy body, inhabit the energy body, let the body lead, be, be, bring that whole sensitivity of awareness um, to bear to the whole space of the energy body, and that allows something to become more imaginal. So the imaginal opens up the energy body, opening up the energy body, inhabiting the energy body um, can open up the imaginal. There's not necessarily a formulaic linear order. 
or again some of the examples I've given in just in this series of talks, one might um, choose deliberately to focus on the sense of um, timelessness or eternality and gently kind of open that out or uh, shift that maybe in a kind of more um, sudden quantum leap um, uh, in different ways, I've, uh, some of which I've thrown out. And in doing that, it allows um, oneself or one's, some aspect of one's existence or what one is um, uh, sensing right now internally, externally, it allows that to be sensed with soul. It allows the whole thing to, to become more imaginal. And correspondingly, of course, because timelessness and eternality are elements of the imaginal, that when something, when we are sensing the soul, when something does become more fully imaginal, we will notice, uh, or at some point, uh, the eternality um, element will, will switch on, will ignite. So just to remember that and, and what it means, in, again, in terms of our poise, our stance, our openness, our need for uh, sensitivity, uh, receptivity, op- opportunism, etc. is very much part of uh, n- n- navigating within imaginal practice. So also when we talk about... Um, uh, navigating or steering, etc. We're also including this um, aspect of pacing, uh, which uh, I've said a little bit about over the over the recent years. But I just want to say one more thing right now about it. Um, uh, with regard to eros and the um, eros psychologos dynamic. So when we define when we defined eros, we uh, included the pothos element in the definition of eros. And say eros wants more uh, contact, more connection, more touching, more opening, more intimacy, etc., with with its beloved erotic um, other. And that more uh, was a key aspect that, um, if you like, uh, drove the whole. Uh, movement of eros and and its stimulation of the soul making dynamic, the eros psychologos dynamic. But if you pay attention to your experience, you will notice that eros doesn't always um, want more right now in this moment. I mean, often it does, and there's a sense of uh, of, of what we just described, um, and that more kind of pushes into uh, dis- creating, discovering more of the beloved other, the beloved imaginal object, creating more faces, more aspects, more dimensions, more images within within the image, etc., or or uh, associated with the image, etc. Um, but sometimes, sometimes the the more uh, with eros wanting more m- uh, may just be uh, to linger right now with the loveliness and delight of whatever perception is there. The loveliness and delight that are part of the subjective experience of Eros. Rather than a wanting to reach, um, penetrate into, uh, uh, open to beyond, unseen, more, show me more. Um, or uh, wanting the image to complexify or to create, discover new faces, new aspects of the beloved. In other words, that 
Eros at those times wants to linger longer. Uh, the more is in the more time. It wants to linger for more time with the loveliness that it has, with the delight that it has, with the sense of the beloved that it already has. Or that it has right there. So, again, we have to be kind of respectful, uh, sensitive to and respectful of, of well, what does the Eros want right now? What kind of more? Often it is that more uh, that will naturally create and discover more faces, more dimensions, uh, more beyonds, that wants to penetrate and open those beyonds and that unfathomability. But sometimes it's not. It's just a kind of, it pauses for a while, so to speak, and it lingers. And again, this has to do with pacing. You know, the pacing of the whole movement of the soul-making dynamic, the whole movement of um, what's happening uh, and what's, what's opening, what's moving and how and when and what kind of rhythms it moves in when we're working with an image, with sensing the soul. Uh, so, Eros and the eros logos dynamic, the soul-making dynamic, have rhythms. They're not necessarily gradual or smooth. Um, so if you perhaps got that impression from the descriptions we've given in the past of the way Eros works and, and the way the soul-making dynamic, the eros logos dynamic works, um, just to bear in mind that uh, the rhythms there may not be gradual or smooth. They may be more step-like rather than the kind of um, smoothly linear graph, if you like. Uh, so that step-like rhythm might be more obvious with the, the uh, logos uh, in general, um, which tends to move. In other words, the, the, the ideas of things, um, selves, objects, world, reality, etc. Um, logos, our, our ideation, our con- concepts and conceptual frameworks tend to move and open. Um, at a slower pace than Eros or Psyche or Image. Um, But I'm saying this partly because I don't think uh, I've spelled that out clearly in talks before and perhaps I've given the impression that it's kind of always in motion with the soul-making dynamic and Eros is always wanting that kind of more. It does generally and for the most part, but as I said, there may be rhythms. The river is flowing and then then it comes to a place in the river where it's it's kind of relatively still and it pools for a while and it enjoys that um, stillness and that pooling and then, you know, it, it moves on. So again, the need for um, uh, withholding, uh, a kind of imposing of, of formulae, uh, the need to listen, to be sensitive, to be open uh, and receptive to what's happening and, and to respect that. Um, or at least be open to respecting it. Because <clears throat> sometimes we need to respond to what's happening and, and make it different. Help it to become something else. And sometimes, uh, you know, we need to kind of impose a sort of um, slowing down or or a kind of stasis um, uh, in in what's happening in what's unfolding 
Sometimes this is for the sake of um, stability and equanimity in the being. That sometimes, um, I'm not sure how common it is, but it can happen, and some people might be, for different reasons, more predisposed to it than others. But it can be that something opens up in the sensing the soul, and there's a lot of excitement. And, and that excitement um, is, is, of course, part of the eros, but sometimes the excitement can fizz in, in the being, in the energy, and in the mind, and in the heart in certain ways that just actually um, mean that what could be absorbed and learned and open to is not so well absorbed, learned, and open to. Um, and maybe the being just gets agitated in, in a way that's not, not that helpful. Maybe something in the whole... Um, stance and structure of the being gets thrown thrown off balance um, in a way again that's not not that helpful of course at times there's a being thrown off balance that is that is ex- extremely helpful despite the fact that it might feel difficult you know we've talked about that the stretching the breaking of the vessels etc but sometimes uh, it can be again uh, wise to um, introduce something or, or lean in a certain way or navigate in uh, within the imaginal constellation that's happening, within the sensing soul that's happening, so that we kind of balance things out, balance the being out, which allows more kind of uh, absorption of the illumination of, of, of whatever we're sensing the soul and the whole uh, allows more illumination of the soul and more um, digestion uh, for the soul of that illumination um, over time. So going back, you know, repeating uh, this teaching about the the fountain and the, the basin of the fountain and that needing to kind of uh, the the water. Um, of the waters of soul needing to kind of balance out the waters of what becomes imaginal needing to balance out and to at least to include um, self other world not with every image of course not but again over time and sometimes within one image again we might find something's out of balance here something something doesn't feel quite right or I can't quite tolerate this um, uh, uh, for instance like the eros is so much leaning towards the other um, with, with in its gaze in its belovedness in its erotic charge and uh, directionality and that's tipping the being over in in some ways um, and so we ca- can counterbalance that, not diminish the eros, but actually, in a way, add to it by allowing ourselves or helping ourselves to become an uh, erotic object for ourselves. The self becomes imaginal. Um, so that there, the eros can flow both ways. There can actually be more eros, but it's balanced. The, the, the eros flowing towards the self balances the eros towards the other uh, and the world, etc., um, included in the world, also we might say, what's my? What we mean by this? What's the sense of the world right now? What kind of world? What kind of cosmos? Uh, what's the cosmopoesis here? What's the perception of things? And included is that in that is the perception of time. So again, one might um, balance things out by just paying attention to what kind of perception of time is happening right now, and maybe that. The perception of time, uh, time 
begins to get sensed with soul. And again, there's all kinds of possibilities there in timelessness or the, the kinds of perception with time. And that allows the eros and, and the soul-making to flow in that direction, fill out in time, and that also, um, again, balances out the flows of, of water here. Um, so that there can be enough equanimity, enough stability in the moment and um, over 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 time in practice that uh, that that things are digested, absorbed. They don't just they don't just um, kind of get bowled over by some amazing experience that was. I can't decide whether it was more amazing or just more agitating. Um, sometimes what happens for some people is that the whole sensing with soul, um, for instance, sensing. Um, uh, something in nature, or some kind of uh, universal process of, you know, the arising of appearances, or some, you know, something about the cosmos, something about consciousness, and the whole sensing with soul. It's hard to say what's sensing with soul and what's insight. Maybe there isn't a, a boundary there. And again, with the insight, there can be a lot of excitement and a lot of turbulence. Um, sometimes, sometimes, um, and so, you know. Going back to the teachings about um, uh, uh, different teachings we've given, perhaps there might be certain of the elements at that point, if that's what's happening. I don't want to throw the whole experience out. There's a lot of insight here. There's a lot of opening. There's a lot of beauty and amazement in this sensing the soul. But perhaps if I just noticed, um, for instance, the sense of grace, and I give that a little bit more attention, or the sense of being loved, um, there can be soothingness in both those qualities. Um, we're pervaded by this grace, we're held by it, we're given something, um, or, or being loved, you know, usually is, is uh, not always, but usually is, it has a kind of soothing quality. So it kind of, um, just some attention, doesn't have to be all the attention, but some attention to those kind of qualities, or as I said, maybe the eternality, um, uh, gives uh, can can kind of soothe things and allow things to be more more stable, more sustaining, more digestible, and in that way more fruitful, more more soulful, more fruitful, full of soul, um, and also the balance of attention, like we said, with self, other world. Where where uh, can I play with this balance of attention and actually feel more the sustainability and stability come into the experience right now? Of course, one has to remember sometimes, I don't know how common this is, but sometimes if there's uh, really a lot of excitement um, that, that's happening with a certain experience, you know, sometimes the excitement means we can't remember so well. But um, I do think this uh, this kind of thing is, is very possible. I've, I've uh, seen it to be so, and, and in interviews, just, just guiding people gently, it, it's, um, it's very possible. It's part of the art of steering. When we, um, again, when we're still talking about steering now, um, and steering, you know, for the sake of uh, soul making, of course, or if I'm steering in emptiness practice, it's steering for the sake of, um, uh, you know, those insights making a difference. 
so yeah, so we talked about intention being key in steering and other factors, but um, something also to bear in mind is uh, these two uh, factors of energy body and also um, ideas or conceptual frameworks and how significant they are. So the pri- they're the primary factors that allow um, soul-making practices and also we could say emptiness practices as well to, to realize their full potential. Um, energy body, we've um, uh, talked about, it's involved in the steering. It tells me when um, something is potentially soul-making, even if my mind is objecting or horrified by something or thinking, oh, this is not very interesting or boring or it's probably rubbish, it's probably irrelevant. The energy body um, can tell me I can read the energy body and with this harmonization, alignment, um, opening, etc., it's telling me I'm on the right track here, no matter what my mind is saying. And I, I can go with it and trust it. So it's part of the steering. But it's also, again, part of what allows um, the uh, um, digestion, the uh, um, almost like the... Uh, mastication, the chewing, the absorption of of the soul-making experience. It allows us to open to it more. It allows the sensing with soul, whatever we're sensing, the imaginal object of the eros, to penetrate the being, to touch the being. It's working, it's kneading the dough of of our body and our being. Um, And not just our body, but through our body, our consciousness and our soul. Um, so that's part of, as I said, uh, also with emptiness practices, because we feel in the body the release that a certain emptiness way of looking or insight way of looking brings. Um, and that allows us to really absorb that insight and to feel the freedom of it and to feel the liberation of it right then and to absorb it more long term. Um, so energy bodies involve both in steering and um Allowing or supporting uh, the soul-making and emptiness practices to 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 realise their full potential, but also uh, the ideation. So the conceptual framework or the ideas supporting um, soul-making and imaginal practice, um, or if we're talking about emptiness practices, um, the ideas that are uh, underpinning them, supporting them, those are absolutely key. So we can have an experience um, in either one of those practices, either imaginal practice or emptiness practice, and the experience itself, if we can even talk about an experience itself as if it's uh, separatable from uh, other conditions and uh, um, surrounding factors. Um, But we might have some experience, and that experience itself may uh, be therapeutic to a certain extent. It may feel therapeutic. It may feel healing. It may be interesting. It may be amazing in either of those two practices, soul-making or emptiness. Um, But it might not be either fully imaginal or soul-making or delivering of uh, liberating insight into emptiness. Because... um, Again, because the ideas that are supporting it are not um, 
ideas are excluded or they're narrowed down or they're not conscious enough, um, etc. Or they're um, or they're too uh, well. Let's, let's say that for now. Um, so, as, as you can tell over the years in the talks, there's a lot of ideas that support the whole soul-making logos. And if they're not operating uh, in a way that, in, in, in the time of practice, doesn't necessarily mean they're at the forefront of my mind, but if they're not operating in ways that support um, the, uh, the, the, the practice, then... Yes, I might have something that feels to a certain extent healing. I might have something that's, wow, if I tell my friends about it or whatever. It might be something that's like, mm, that's really interesting. But there won't be the fully um, fully uh, imaginal or fully soul-making potential there. That won't be, uh, I, won't, I won't receive that. And similarly with, with the emptiness. Something might um, fade through some practice, but if I'm not... Uh, kind of haven't got some portion of my mind understanding uh, the, uh, the idea uh, of why that fading is significant. It fades when I do this, or when I drop that, or when I don't do this. And that's teaching me about dependent arising. So yeah, sure, if there's some painful papancha, painful story, painful history, the body pain, etc., and it fades, we feel great, that was really helpful, amazing that it faded, etc. But if I'm not linking it up, if it's not undergirded by um, certain, uh, again, light, l- lightly held uh, uh, concepts and ideas that are appropriate, that are the ones that are helpful, well, it won't be helpful, that experience, or rather it's the, the help of it will be limited. And I, I doubt I will have any kind of long-term benefit from it. So, um, energy body, but also very much um, ideas, uh, concepts, logoi, conceptual frameworks, etc. And that, as I said at the beginning, is is, uh, the second sort of aspect that I want to um, go into, offer a few things, uh, reflections and considerations about tonight. So... um, yeah, the importance, or, or the importance certainly of conceptual frameworks, but also of you know individual concepts. I mean, so we use this word logos uh, for either one concept or one idea, or a much larger frame of ideas, framework of ideas. Like, for example, um, the soul making dharma is a whole conceptual framework, or um, uh, you know, um, even I guess Theravadan, uh, the way. A certain tradition practices in Theravada and insight meditation is also a whole conceptual framework there, as opposed to a whole network of related ideas that together form a kind of um, hopefully coherent framework and helpful framework. So by logos, I mean uh, I can mean e- either of those, <clears throat> either one idea or a whole framework. And so uh, you know we've stressed the importance of this and how. Um, a kind of um, limited logos or inappropriate logos, logoi, or um, a narrowing down or rigidification or holding on to some logoi can block and inhibit the whole soul-making process. Um, It can block the whole soul-making dynamic from growing and fertilizing. It can also block anything from becoming image or from, uh, it can block us from sensing the soul at any at any moment. 
So, um, in this series, I've mentioned already a couple of times, um, if, um, uh, for instance, this dukkha or this image, I'm uh, consciously or unconsciously regarding it as being a result of one cause, only one cause, whatever that cause is, something in my history or this or that, or uh, it's a representation of one part of my being or one quality of my being, whatever it is, that limitation, that r- reduction to only one causal explanation will, um, will inhibit the sensing the soul. Okay? And again, find out for yourself. Recognize the difference how it feels different, something, again, something might feel very healing, very touching to the heart. Um, it's, let's say, a dukkha that I look at um, in, um, that, that I look at uh, from the perspective of an explanation of something that happened in my history, perhaps in my family or whatever. Um, and I might work with it, perhaps with a therapist or whatever, and it can feel my heart is touched, um, it helps me, it makes a difference, I can recognize, I can understand something about myself, I can move on, I can implement some other way of seeing and relating in time, etc. So it might be really helpful, it, it, will, it won't be um, sensing the soul, it won't become imaginal. And when things are imaginal, as I said, they have a certain flavor. Um, so, uh, and, and want to really get, get familiar with what it feels like to be in the territory, to be towards the more fully, more authentically imaginal. So you begin to taste all these things for yourself. Oh yeah, that's what happens when something's gotten flat now. You can feel it. And, and in time you can even feel it in another. You're talking with someone else and you feel when they've gone flat. When their perspective has gone flat and therefore not dimensionalized, not imaginal. So do, you know, get familiar with the tastes, the flavors, the, the feeling, the sense of, of these different areas of our existence, all of which are important. You know, flat experience, therapeutic flat experience can be really helpful, as, as I said. Or again, I might be relating to uh, a figure in the imagination as um, it represents my meta or whatever it is, or my compassion, or my um, self-empowerment, whatever. And that can be really helpful. You know, it might empower me that way. It might um, help me develop meta. Great, really important. But if I decide, you know, um, if I limit the... um, the kind of explanation of what that what that image is or what that sense is there of the object that I'm sensing with soul, then the whole thing can't really take off. So the power of ideas to um, both inhibit and limit the um, sensing with soul and the soul making dynamic, but also to stimulate it and to open it and to and to uh, to fire it up to ignite it. So with regard to um, causality, um, might it be that it's possible to uh, have, again, um, a flexible uh, a flexibility and a range of how we're conceiving at, uh, in any instant. So we're opening the range, or opening a range, with respect to the um, the notion, the idea, the logos of causality. Um, 
because particularly around dukkha, but actually around a- anything. So, if we use the example of dukkha to say it's um, it's caused from the past, um, caused from some event in the past, this dukkha in the moment is giving rise to this image, or just the dukkha itself. That would be one kind of causal explanation that looks to the past. It's very normal. It's the most common understanding. Uh, or the most common assumption of the mind when it's confronted with any object that its causes lie in the past. For a Dharma practitioner, uh, uh, as I see it, it's really, really important to understand the dependent arising in the present. Meaning, the way I'm looking at this right now, the perspective uh, through which I'm sensing, uh, or with which I'm sensing this thing, this object, this aspect of myself, whatever it is, um, uh, that conditions what I perceive and how, how the object is. So there's causality in the present, dependent, dependently arising in the present, dependent on what? Dependent on, yeah, sure, all kinds of external factors, but also and um, primarily for the purposes of insight for a Dharma practitioner, uh, dependent on the way of looking. So we can say Caused, caused from the past is one kind of uh, possible notion of causality. Caused in the present. Yeah, and that's very unusual of how we tend to think, because uh, we tend to think a cause needs to precede its effect. Um, but actually, with the, with a profound understanding of dependent arising, they go together. The dependently arise together, the way of looking and the object perceived. Or a third option would be uh, what we might call teleological or um, uh, teleologically caused. In other words, um, caused, so to speak, by the future, by the angel out ahead, by um, something that soul is pulling me towards, if you like, or that if you want another way of framing it, that soul is pulled towards by the daemon, by the angel. This dukkha is the angel's grief. It's the angel's dukkha. It's the angel's judgment. It's the angel asking too much of me, or what feels like too much right now. Uh, it's stretching me um, hugely. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it kind of too, seems too big for me to handle at present. I mean, usually it's not, but it can, it can feel that way. And so that's a very different understanding of the dukkha. The dukkha is coming from the angel coming from the demands of the angel, coming from the calling of the angel, coming from the ask of the angel, or it's the angels themselves. This angel looks uh, with a kind of fierce um, uh, fierce moral indignation or a wrathful gaze, uh, etc. And that feels like dukkha. Or this angel is grieving um, the... the, the is, maybe grieving, grieving the, the plight of the planet, the plight of the earth, and the grief feels so deep, um, whatever it is. Um, so this, this third uh, possibility, um, teleological causation, there's a telos there, something, a goal, something, an end, the angel out ahead, something where <coughs> um, being propelled or pulled towards. Um, so Again, is it possible to open up that range, that range of possibility, and to exercise some flexibility in picking up and putting down, including um, focusing on these different 
uh, causal explanations and trying them out. And they will make a difference. They will make a huge difference to how something is um, sensed and what the experience uh, actually is that unfolds. Uh, so again, we could um, add that to our list um, in the spreading of five wings. I can't remember if that one was already in there, or we can certainly add it. So just like the range of <coughs> perceived sort of density or substantiality, or insubstantiality of the energy body uh, as a range, um, or the pathology, uh, pathologizing or non-pathologizing images, um, uh, uh, the the openness uh, to to the range of um, right now to the range um, of uh, of causal explanations. And some, some sometimes these are just unconscious, so you can actually make them more conscious and deliberately play with them. But there, there is that possibility, opening up the Logos away from the <coughs> um, typically narrowed, um, uh, constricted range of causal explanation uh, that goes with our um, contemporary culture, or the dominant culture at least. There's the possibility of that flexibility, that openness, that playing, that investigation. Yeah, really important. So in a way that has to do um, the causal explanations have also to do with the nature of time. Because how can you have a cause in the future? And that doesn't work, we would tend to think. Um, but um, there's, uh, there's something here to open up. There's a lovely passage regarding the um, conceptions of time from while well, Henri Corbin's reporting it. I can't quite remember where he's reporting it from. Um, so forgive me for that, but it's he talks about it in his um, book Temple and Contemplation, and um, uh, it's to do with. with some of you will know the story of uh, from the Old Testament of Moses as a baby was um, uh, the. The Pharaoh of Egypt was, um, the story goes, the Pharaoh of Egypt, um, I don't know, had a premonition or an intuition or a rumor that um, a, a son would be born to, to the Jewish people and would be destructive for the Egyptian people, some, something like that, I can't remember exactly, would be a threat or would liberate the Jewish people from their, uh, from their uh, enslavement and their, you know, utility as a workforce for the for the. Uh, Egyptians for the Pharaoh, and so he had he received this warning somehow, and he, um, if I remember the story, it's been a while. Um, <clears throat> so he tried to um, kill all the uh, male infants to prevent this um, prophecy or whatever it was unfolding um, in, in in those ways, um, and so retaining uh, his his uh, free workforce essentially um, and his power. And so, some, someone or somewhere, there's a, there's this interpretation. And so, what, sorry, what happens is Moses, is, if I remember, mother and his sister um, hide Moses in a little uh, kind of 
I don't know, wicker or uh, woven willow or something, some kind of little uh, cradle or crib or basket, um, a little ark that floated and hid him in the bulrushes on the Nile, on the river Nile. So this little this little um, cradle was floating there on the bulrushes out of sight. And um, uh, the story goes then that his sister Miriam um, was working as a servant, I think, for the pharaoh and um, uh, found found the cradle and um, uh, they adopted uh, they adopted Moses for Pharaoh. Anyway, um, the the interpretation is uh, so. Um, Uh, but of course, if if Moses had stayed there in the water, then uh, he would have um, eventually would have sunk and he would have drowned. So, um, what Corban reports here is, and I said I'm not sure where it comes from, but um, is that one of the symbolic properties of water is to typify the sense of time and of engulfment in time. Uh, um, so according to some some kind of uh, system of symbology, one of the symbolic properties of water is to typify the sense of time and of engulfment in time. That means engulfment in uh, the inexorable movement of past, present, future, the sort of usual linear um, sense and interpretation of time, the usual um, uh, interpretation and reading of history, of past, etc., and of events in time. Pharaoh's aim, he continues, is to make all male children who sink into time, sink into water, succumb to the indifferent uniformity of all that is encased in time. So, in other words, this indifferent uniformity of all that is encased in time is just to, to sink in flatland, basically to be engulfed by a flat perspective on everything. Uh, time is just what it seems to be to the flat view. Um, and Pharaoh's aim is to prevent them from rising to the height of the worlds, uh, of other worlds that can be revealed. In other words, um, the, the worlds of the angels, of the demon, the worlds of uh, the archetypes and the myths, the worlds of the angel out ahead, the world where everything is, um, this is always already happening. The worlds of eternal time, hierophanic t- time. Um, Pharaoh's aim is that they are to drown in the waters of secular one-dimensional history. One way of reading events is also what Corbin's main point here is about one way of reading the Bible or, or sacred literature as just a historic document, a collection of stories, some of which may be true, some of which may bear some relevance to so-called fact, etc., some which may be made up, but they're all... Taken as literal rather than as um, symbolic and multi-dimensional and endlessly open to to interpretation to an infinitely fertile hermeneutics, etc. They are to drown in the waters of secular one-dimensional history. Um, and so, in this little ark, um, perhaps Pharaoh drowned the, the the children. That's why it's making this. Um, uh, this danger of water, I, I don't know. Um, this little ark uh, preserved Moses from the flux of historical time, we should say from the from the perspective 
of, of that usual um, flux of hist- historical time. What Pharaoh wanted was that, uh, on the other hand, was that only normal man should, uh, should survive. The man, so he was afraid, according to this interpretation, he was afraid of someone who could see uh, more than just the, the linear, flat um, view and interpretation and sense of time. What Pharaoh wanted, on the other hand, was that only normal man should survive. The man who conforms absolutely to the norm of a world which, which he says, does not wish to know that he's an exile, but also does not wish to know that there are, uh, what he really means is there are other dimensions. That there, there is hierophanic time. There is the uh, sense of the eternal and, um, and a whole perspective that instead of regarding the eternal as um, just unreal imagination. What is eternal, what is timeless, actually emanates or projects um, this world. The events of this world, the events recorded in, 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 in the, um, in the uh, stories of, of, of scripture or whatever, are potential symbols taking, opening up this other world and the power of that and the beauty of that and as I said the anchoring of that the rooting of that um, so again there's <clears throat> there's this um, you know we're talking about causality which is obviously tied into uh, our notions our views of time and uh, the possibility of opening that up Shifting it, not dogmatically replacing one with the other, as if as if there is no causality from the past. Of course, there is, as if events don't happen in linear time, um, or can be sensed that way, and it makes sense to understand them that way. But that's not the only way we can sense things. And if it is the only way, then we're impoverished by that. We are limited by that. Our soul and our soul making is grossly limited by that. Inhibited. But more widely, you know, we can um, uh, again stress the um, real indis- indispensability of um, concepts and conceptual frameworks um, for soul making. So we've got as one of the nodes, excuse me, that um, you know, an imaginal experience is not a non-conceptual experience. There are concepts operating there. Um, they may be um, subtly in the background. They may be at the foreground. They may have initiated the whole process. They may result from the process. They may be just woven in with the whole thing. But concepts are operating. And more widely, as I said earlier today, the uh, the whole conceptual fra- a whole conceptual framework is necessary for a certain kind of fil- fertility of imaginal practice. It won't really be that soul-making without a conceptual framework that supports it. Uh, so I remember uh, talking with someone <coughs> on who came to a retreat, and she had been, um, re- she reported in an interview that she'd been, you know, practicing with the imagination um, and being with um, images, etc., for years, um, but it, it all kept kind of collapsing um, into a kind of um, 
seemed to me a very kind of unfertile soup. So she would be drawn to it, and then and then and then just the whole thing would seem ridiculous to her, or she would just get very confused, or just it would all really stagnate. Nothing really blossomed much at all, despite years of you know good intention and practice and curiosity. And as we were talking, it became clear to me uh, that there was no conceptual framework um, supporting um, the imaginal there, or supporting uh, a really you know fecund and rich uh, uh, working with image and sensing with soul. Um, rather, you know, she had been a long time in the Dharma in a certain tradition, <coughs> and um, so the conceptual framework that she was bringing to kind of meet the um, experiences of images was was actually a much more typical Dharma conceptual framework. For example, everything's impermanent, um, as well as typical um, uh, modernist views about reality, you know, what's real and what isn't, etc. And there was also mixed with that a certain... Um, let's call it loyalty, I'll put it in inverted commas, loyalty to Buddha Dharma, actually loyalty to being a Buddhist or identifying with, with being a Buddhist. And all, all those, uh, the absence of a really um, coherent and supportive conceptual fr- structure for uh, the imaginal and, and to, to open up the imaginal and the sensing the soul, together with this kind of um, infection or infiltration with just typical... Um, uh, Dharma concept, or as you viewed it, typical Dharma conceptual frameworks about whatever it was, impermanence, etc., and and death and the meaningless of um, sort of the uh, existential fact of impermanence and the uh, the pathos of that, the kind of uh, secular existentialist Dharma, um, together with modernist views about what was real, and not, and, and all that kind of just led to this. Stagnation and kind of circling in in doubt, etc. For, for years, um, so it's it's so it's so crucial. And I know that some people struggle uh, with the conceptual piece, or it seems a bit heady or whatever. But um, again, see for yourself. Um, without it, uh, the sensing the soul, the imaginal practice will either um, lack a lot of dimensionality and power, a lot of range, a lot of depth um, and uh, possibility of what can open up. Um, or it will it will kind of veer into uh, a path that kind of looks ostensibly similar at one level, some kind of shamanism or energy healing or whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> Um, all, all of which is fine if people have their choices of what they do. But if we actually uh, want to really support what we're talking about by um, sensing the soul and, and the imaginal and those words, um, then the conceptual framework um, is crucial. Sa- same with, as I said earlier, same with emptiness practice or whatever. The conceptual framework um, makes a huge difference. So people can have all kinds of experience. As I said, I mentioned someone could have an experience of the unfabricated. Everything fades completely. There's a complete disappearance. And um, 
uh, and I've met several yogis who've reported to me in interviews something like that, but they don't seem to have got any liberating insight from it because they haven't tied it to a conceptual framework that understands emptiness and dependent arising. Sometimes, fortuitously, they do. There's the opening of a mystical experience and it does something to their sense of this world and, and this self, etc. Other times it doesn't. It's not... Um, it's not helpfully underpinned um, by uh, by by conceptual framework that allows this um, opening and absorption and uh, gives things their, their place and their power. <clears throat> so um, this is really worth bearing in mind. And some of you may have had this experience. Um, you you can see uh, just how important conceptual frameworks are. Um, sometimes when when you're working in a, in a dyad and doing soul making practice, for instance, working uh, sharing an image or working with an image together, um, you you can notice or you will notice how a limiting conceptual framework, even if it's um, held um, unconsciously by only one of the of the people in the diet, by only one of the pair. It's amazing. Two people are working. One person's conceptual framework is is more full and more supportive of the whole uh, sensing the soul um, paradigm, and the others is not. Um, there's some limits to it, or it's very partial, or it's not really there at all, but they like images, and they like hanging out, and they like the sense of intimacy, or whatever it is. Or there might be some one piece of the conceptual framework that, that one of the people is, is not even realizing that they're, um, uh, how they're unconsciously limiting a logos. And it limits the experience for both partners. It actually limits what can arise as image and energy, etc., for both both people in the diet, even though only one person um, is holding this view, and they haven't even said that they're holding the view, and maybe they don't even realize that they're holding the view. Something in the magic of dyad practice, um, and and what gets uh, the, the kind of connection there, the mystery of the connection there, uh, uh, shows us just how powerful um, the con- conceptions and conceptual frameworks are which suggests that it may really not be a good idea to um, try to engage in at least soul-making diet practice. You can all do all kinds of diet practices with people. You can play. You can do the balance of attention thing. You can just talk about how you're feeling. You can do insight dialogue. You, can, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do in dyads. But if you want a soul-making dyad, and you're trying to do that with someone who doesn't... Um, share or know the conceptual framework, it's it's actually going to fall flat and be limited and probably be frustrating and maybe even a bit painful um, for you or for them or for both of you. So it's probably not a good idea. I'm not saying that because, you know, when you kind of, this is a religion and we want people who, you know, have the credo in the religion. Not at all. It's just to say, look at this, isn't this interesting? The power of concepts, the power of conceptual frameworks to limit or to open, to inhibit or to support and um, uh, make deeper and, and widen the, um, 
the soul-making perceptions, etc. Uh, it's it's um, certainly important for oneself, and um, if one needs any more convincing, one can see uh, how, it, how it works in dyads as well. But there is, um, again, something to consider in terms of advice, that it may really not be very um, uh, satisfying or fruitful to uh, to try and do these soul-making uh, dyad practices um, with someone who, who doesn't share or doesn't know the conceptual framework. Now, I can understand the impulse, because people might hear it and you feel, this is so super exciting, all this stuff, and you have a friend and it's like, well, we sh- we're, you know, they're, uh, they like practice, they're, you know, good at intimacy or whatever, um, but it may well not work, because there isn't the um, the shared logos, and, and the, shared, the, the sharing of a logos that's actually supportive. So it's something to really um, consider. Uh, you know, and that has to do with temenos and also caring for your soul, caring for soul in general, caring for practice, and also caring for your relationship with whoever that person is. Like I said, it might, you know, if you feel frustrated and unfulfilled, it might have, you know, they pick that up and uh, it can be a strange feeling and they feel, you know, somehow I'm being rejected here or I'm not good enough or whatever it is. So it's something to really consider. So the importance and the centrality um, of logos concepts, ideas, and conceptual frameworks. How, um, as I said, indispensably they need to be uh, present and or woven in to um, to soul making practice. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> let's just say something about um, the way that can work. Um, so again, when um, <clears throat> when we, when I was explaining uh, how the eros psyche logos dynamic uh, works, um, which I've done quite a few times, and Catherine also has some very lovely explanations of it, I think um, we kind of p- put it as if eros comes first, and then. Um, it, it inseminates and, and uh, uh, fertilizes and complexifies um, psyche or image. And in so doing, when psyche and image is uh, expanded uh, and um, opened up and diversified that way, <coughs> um, uh, our sense of this or that thing or this or that um, object in the world or aspect of ourself is open that way. Um, through through the experience of the image, then over time the logos gets expanded too. We actually start questioning our views of reality and what a thing is. Maybe it could be this thing as well. Maybe there's other ways to see things. So from the sort of imp- initial impulse of eros um, through the expansion of psyche, then the expansion of logos. But again, it doesn't have to work that way around. And um, Hopefully this is this is obvious by now, but again, it's worth saying. Um, there may be um, eros for logos. In other words, a person starts to uh, the libido starts to to flow towards either a certain idea or um, logos in general, and just one one kind of perhaps after years of resistance or 
kind of wanting to push away conceptualization and intellectualization and all that out for all different kinds of reasons, um, a person starts to um, actually fall in love with logos, meaning fall in love with the whole realm of concepts and potent ideas and poetic ideas and what they can do in the soul. Um, maybe for one idea, maybe for that whole realm, maybe for the whole conceptual framework of soul-making, for example. But when there's eros for logos, um, the logos is ignited as well. The eros ignites, instead of inseminating psyche, it's like the logos itself becomes image. It becomes a erotic, imaginal, beloved other. A logos or the logos, or logos in general. Um, uh, logos is ignited through eros's passion for logos, um, and that engenders more um, creation discovery of other concepts and conceptual frameworks. Yeah. So the logos, um, rather than the logos kind of always trailing in third place and expanding last as a result of the expansion of the eros and then, and then the psyche or image, um, it could be the eros impregnates logos and there's this passion uh, for logos. Logos is ignited and gives birth to more creation, discovery of more, more concepts, more uh, conceptual frameworks, etc., and, of course, the whole um, <clears throat> soul-making dynamic, the whole eros psychologos dynamic, might, might be, itself might be stimulated into expansion when, when the logos itself is directly stimulated or stretched or shattered or um, uh, in, ignited by something. You might read something, you might hear something in a talk or something someone says or an idea that's shared or a thought or concept that arises spontaneously in the mind. So there's an example of um, an idea coming and the mind of the soul basically being uh, uh, impacted by that idea and something breaking open in the whole realm of ideation. And then Logos expands and then uh, Eros and image can come from that, etc. So there's uh, all kinds of possibilities there. Um, and I gave uh, some examples uh, in this series already. So if we go back to that example of me reading about these ten sefirot, the teachings from um, the Kabbalistic teachings about the, uh, well, some would say the inner, the inner nature of the Godhead, some would would say the, 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 the teachings there actually it's about the emanation of God or the energy of God, the manifestations of God either way um, and the possibility of regarding them too because to quote uh, the passage from the beginning of Genesis um, humankind uh, made in the image and likeness of God that our human psychology, our soul also uh, um, has refractions um, uh, mirrors that structure of the tense of your that that the Buddha nature has, that the divinity has, so that there's a kind of um, parallel process, or even a connected process there. Well, all that's an idea. It's quite an elaborate idea, um, and one can take that idea and begin with that in practice. One is actually deliberately taking an idea that's attractive to one and uh, putting it in the uh, um, <laughs> putting it in the in, 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 in the in the gun chamber, so to speak, and um, and seeing what what what, uh, what 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 comes out of that, what shoots out of that in the looking. Um, 
So that would be, that's an example of quite an elaborate idea. It might be a much less elaborate idea. Um, there's all kinds of possibilities. Uh, and I'm sure over the years I've, I've given many, but that's one from, from these, uh, so far in these talks. Or I also shared another one um, uh, where I said I was talking with Catherine and we were talking about, or she was sharing with me this idea of I am soul. And she was sharing uh, what that meant to her and how she, un- uh, how that stimulated a certain direction of exploration in her practice. And um, I was listening to that, but I was left with this phrase, "I am soul." And um, and it did it. it uh, I, I worked with it myself, but it took me in a, in a different direction than what she was talking about. So there's this kind of germinal idea, this seed <coughs> of an idea, "I am soul." And I think I was even uh, interpreting it, even though what those three words mean um, meant had uh, I, it, it was taken up in my soul, in my mind, in my being and practice with a different interpretation than than uh, Catherine had elucidated to me and explained to me about her her practice. Um, so there's this this like like um, seeds in nature, they 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 float from one from one. Uh, flower or plant or tree to another um, to another resting place, and they give birth there. And uh, the form that they give birth to might be slightly different. Just so we share ideas and we inseminate each other, um, and we are inseminated by the ideas of others. But what what arises from those sort of um, little germs or seeds um, might might be quite different um, than than uh, what what I had. Transpired or arisen in, in in the source of those ideas, where we heard them from, where we read them from. So I had shared this "I am soul," this idea, this phrase, really, that I got from Catherine, and it uh, and how I, I'd shared only partially about that. So I want to say a little bit more about it. Um, <clears throat> uh, in a way, it uh, there were there were a few ideas wrapped up in it, and that's what I want to. Um, partly what I want to emphasize. So I am soul, as I think I already explained when I mentioned it first, it kind of relativized the um, relationship with and the uh, view of the ontological status of body and matter. Um, So I am soul uh, made the principle the sort of weight of the principal identification, if, if, if you said any so I was playing with a different identification, I am soul, um, and soul as this, as I said, loose definition, this organ of per- perceiving in soulful ways, uh, this instrument that wants to perceive and does perceive in, 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 in ways that are soul-making. Um, and that, but that kind of then relative... Uh, diminishing of the ontological status or the primary reality sense or degree of reality of, say, body and matter, um, did something to perception, uh, which became less substantial. In other words, it was fabricated less. It was it was fading to a slight degree. It loosened and liquefied the whole of perception. Um, and... Um, and then with that, other elements came in, like the, the fullness of intention, etc. And so there was a real malleability with regard to perception. So that was one, one 
in these three words, I am soul, um, an idea that Catherine was communicating to me, um, it was picked up differently, and it also kind of became an, a, a constellation of ideas, a constellation of logoi. It's not quite a framework, but it was more like um, a few ideas were sort of coalescing together, stitched loosely together in a way that was very fertile. Because the second one, I can't remember if I shared this the first time round, but um, was that I am soul, and what is the nature of soul? It's, it's that um, it there is an open two-way participation between um, God or Buddha nature and my soul. That God or Buddha nature participates in my soul, participates in that um, sensing with soul, in that organ of uh, soulful perception, that instrument of soulful perception. And, two-way, my soul participates in God, in, in the Buddha nature. So that was a second idea, or a, sec- a kind of double idea, the double participation, that wove its way into this, um, and mixed with this other idea of the, the uh, kind of relativized the ontological status of soul and body and matter. Um, so that they became mixed together. But then actually a third idea was um, woven up, woven in with this, um, uh, that I and all that is happening, uh, meaning my narrative, and, and I think at the time I was doing this was particularly um, prominent, was, was the sense of my illness and, and dying, etc. Um, so I... And all that is happening, my narrative and all that, and all I perceive, um, including uh, others that I was uh, looking at or, and the surroundings, all of that is is soul. I could say my soul. I could say I could say the soul. So you get you get the sense how there's all these kind of um, uh, sub ideas that are um, wrapped up in in. In, in a kind of uh, uh, idea, a loose, uh, a loose and light ideational structure. I, there wasn't a great deal of sort of intellectual grinding and pondering and sort of heavy. Okay, let me really focus on that idea. It was all very light. It's very delicate. They're like um, little drops of tincture in 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 the waters of soul, and they colour things and they shape things, and alchemical reactions start happening from dropping these, this tincture in or because they dropping a seed into the water or whatever the different things start flowering but actually it's a it's a kind of mix a loose mix of strands of ideas um, so in um, or in that last sub idea um, the perception and sensing the soul there is is kind of similar to emptiness practice perception um, of self and uh, other um, not being separate. So some of you who have done some emptiness practice know that as a kind of um, staging post or important perception or way of looking at certain levels of self and other, subject and object, not separate. So it's akin to that. It has some similarities. But here, uh, the difference is... Um, in that sub-idea, the, diff- from, the difference from the emptiness idea is um, it's not universal. Again, the particulars are, retra- are retained and important. 
and even more than that, they're necessary to soul. The particulars, my particulars, my narrative. Um, it's not just that uh, things get equalized and kind of universalized and a little bit faded um, in the um, in the uh, non-separateness of uh, subject and object, of self and other and what is perceived. Um, rather, the uh, all this, uh, all these particulars. Um, are retained and sensed as necessary to soul, necessary to Buddha nature, necessary to God. Necessary to God. This dukkha, this narrative, maybe even this tragedy, if one looks at it a certain way. It's retained and necessary, but somehow beautiful, precious, ensouled, divine, and lighter for that view. There is there is a relief of, of, of suffering uh, with it. So again, there's an, even another aspect to the idea. And as I said, all these kind of um, seeds begin to, to coalesce a little bit loosely and give rise to um, uh, the perception, the sensing of soul. So you can, if you go back to the original, I am soul. So I wasn't um, so much thinking all this in, in some kind of mental, verbal process it was just I was holding this idea I am soul and that that that, that three word phrase really you know short words I am soul it's almost as if it functioned as a as a kind of um, what would we call it as a uh, an orientation and a stimulant um, to the sensing with soul but it contained as a sort of silent subtext uh, all these other ideas, these sub-ideas, subtexts, they're, they're kind of written in small print, so to speak. Um, they're implicit, but but powerful. Yeah? Um, so when we say idea, we don't necessarily mean, again, we don't necessarily mean, you know, some kind of slow, laborious uh, cranking of the mental cogs, etc., with a lot of wordiness, etc. They can be really, really subtle. They function like like little seeds or germs or like a, like a yeast um, or something. Poetic ideas, poetic seeds, but they include subtexts um, that slant and direct the, um, uh, the sensing and the opening in, in different ways. Some of those ideas, uh, when this works, and again, if you try it out, you, you know, some of the ideas can, will still be very powerful, even when they're very vague. They're not completely worked out ideas or completely coherent or I'm not really clear about um, exactly what I mean when I say that. But it still has that power. The ideation is functioning enough to have power, um, but not so much that I've worked everything out and certainly not so much that it becomes, as I said, this kind of uh, overly clunky, uh, laborious uh, pondering or cogitation or, or, or thinking through something. Not that you know that might have its place at other times, but when we're actually engaged in practice or employing ways of looking, then the ideation. This goes for emptiness practice as well. The ideation needs to be very light, feather light, you know, really like a like a little drops of tincture or seed or something. So there's there's subtext, there's coales- coalescences of um, of sub ideas. Um, uh, they may be vague um, ideas and concepts. And they may be illogical. 
um, it may be that uh, they don't make logical sense. Um, you know, there are some philosophers of science who are wanting to open up uh, different kinds of logic just because of what's been um, discovered in uh, in quantum physics and with subatomic particles. So usually logic would say um, a, per, a thing cannot be A and not A. It's called the law of the excluded middle. Either it's A, either it's this, or it's not this. Um, uh, but it can't be both at once. But when, when physicists look um, at the behavior of subatomic uh, particles, sometimes even molecules, so larger than atoms, and they see actually it's somehow, it's called the superposition principle, it somehow seems to be in a state where two contradictory um, uh, states or conditions are existing at once. And so that needs, uh, that's one example, but uh, other findings as well, suggest a need for a new kind of logic. Um, uh, other people, like the philosopher uh, J.M. Findlay, uh, just in a kind of phenomenology of everyday experience, um, and in his kind of like, look, even everyday experience doesn't really add up um, and needs a different kind of logic um, to to kind of understand it better or feel out better what's going on. Um, but, as I said, there's... Uh, Subtext, possibility of vague ideas, and possibility of ideas that don't even uh, seem logical. This idea of subtext is also common in emptiness practice. So, uh, I think I might have mentioned in this in this series already, um, like the, the way of looking that sees just a perception and, and looks at things, decides to look at everything. It's just a perception. It's just a perception. Actually, there needs to be. Um, a consciousness of what is the subtext for what I mean by just a perception. Because it could mean something like, it's it's not solid, uh, it's just of the nature of awareness. Uh, that would be one possible subtext for the, the emptiness way of looking, just a perception. Or it could be, it's just a perception, in other words, it's fabricated by the way of looking, um, by clinging, etc. And that's a slightly different uh, um, subtext, and they will have different uh, deliverances and different degrees of liberation. They will take you to different depths, the second being deeper than the first. So this idea, when we're talking about ideation in practice and incorporating concept into perception, um, into ways of looking, again, needs to be very light, and the subtext... Um, needs to be conscious, but not, not too heavy that it's clunky, and uh, uh, there needs to retain, we need to retain a kind of agility with it. Um, but these ideas, like I said, they, they, they flow from between human beings, what we read, what we hear, something in conversation, sometimes even mishearing something or misunderstanding something ends up, uh, you know, uh, implanted some misunderstanding or misinterpretation ends up um, being a, a very powerful and uh, fecund seed in in one's consciousness. Yeah. Sometimes people, someone said to me the other day, you know, I'd, I can't get on with guided meditations or people suggesting this or you do this, this, this. But someone I listen, I listen to you talk, and I, I just, uh, you know, you share this or that, and I somehow. Um, 
uh, absorb a certain idea and somehow I adapt that idea and I try it out in practice and and it opens up sensing the soul. Um, <clears throat> so formulae uh, for using certain ideas might work, formulae for guided meditations might work at times or for different people. But there's also this kind of um, possibility of more opportunistic um, seeding and stimulation of ideas um, between uh, between people. So, you know, as always, we we create, discover, uh, we create and discover um, these possibilities. Um, uh, sensitive and responsive to the, the soul-making resonances and the sense of soulfulness, and that allows us to navigate. Um, so an idea, we might discover it until it's given to us, we might create a certain idea, we might meld, as I gave that example with the I am soul, you're actually um, bringing together in this very gentle weave, uh, very light touch, you're bringing together certain um, ideas and kind of seeing what alchemy happens when these ideas... Uh, are, are lightly entertained and then allowed to um, shape and influence and uh, determine and, and fabricate the perception, the sensing. So as always, the, the navigation has to be uh, in, in response, in sensitive response, what actually feels uh, soul-making right now, what, what feels uh, that it's um, opening that. All these possibilities uh, and many more, obviously, are there, just to give you uh, a little idea tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.